0: This morning we'll be looking at Genesis 14 as our text, as we continue in the life of Abraham. Although at this point, he's still named Abram. We'll see a name change soon. But for now, our text is Genesis chapter 14. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. It is completely authoritative over our lives. And it is completely sufficient to guide us in faith and life. Genesis chapter 14. In the days of Amphrail, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Cherdeleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Eshteroth-Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shaba kiriathim and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En-Mishpat, that is, Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon, Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar, went out. And they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Cherdeleomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amphrail king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elaser. Four kings... Against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram had heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the women, and the people. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine." He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshgal, and Mamre take their share. Thus far the reading of God's Holy Word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that You would teach us from Your Word, that You would instruct us in the path that we are to go, that You would show us the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might find our sufficiency in Him. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are continuing this morning in our study of Abram's life, here now at chapter 14, and the life of Abram has been one of ups and downs, and at least for me, that's comforting. Can you recall back to the time when you first began to know the Lord? First began to think about the things of God. First began to read the Scriptures. And perhaps you anticipated that from this point on, everything would be peaches and cream. Life would be perfect. There would be no downsides. There would be no hesitations. There would be no difficulties. Well, for me, it's helpful to see a man like Abram go through trials, make mistakes, and follow and trust the Lord. We've been seeing this. He was called by God to leave the land of his home and his family. And in a great show of faith, he did. But then shortly after that, he went down into Egypt and failed to trust the God who had called him to preserve him. And he stuck to his own wits. Told his wife to lie so that they might be safe. And then we saw last Week in chapter 13, as he and Lot were trying to determine where they would go, that Abram trusted God's promises so much that he made a choice against all seeming common sense, deferring to Lot and trusting that God would bring about his promises no matter what. Here in chapter 14, we see another difficulty that Abram goes through. We see Abram going through a difficulty that is Perhaps different in degree, but not in kind from that which you and I suffer. That is, Abram is going through a difficulty caused by problems in the world. The world is not a perfectly safe place. I know that's a newsflash for you. But it isn't. Every week, every day, we hear of tragedies. And for every tragedy that we hear of, like most recently in Colorado, there are hundreds that go on throughout the world that we do not. How do we live a life of faith in the face of these kinds of challenges? How does our trust in the Lord move beyond a bare trusting to a trusting that propels us into action? That's what we'll see here this morning In Genesis 14, Lord willing, we will see three things from our text. First, we will see the challenges in the world that Abram faces and that we face. And then, second, we will see the courage that comes from faith in the living God. And then, third, we will see the commitment to the Lord, which comes as a result of the faith that we have in Him. A challenge, courage, and a commitment. Let's begin then by looking at the challenge that the world presents. Abram is presented with a challenge that is very much like our modern times. He is faced with a challenge of events out of control. This is something that is very easy for us to understand. Children understand it well as they know that many events are completely out of their control. They might profess to rather vacation in Florida than in Ohio. But they go wherever mom and dad take them. They may profess that school should really start sometime around November. But it will still begin when mom and the state say it will. But this is also true for us as adults, isn't it? How many of you wake up on a weekday and say, You know what, I wonder if I'll go to work today. You don't. There are events that are outside of our control. Recessions. Natural disasters. we need to understand that this is not contrary to the framework of the universe and God's place in it, but it is a part of that framework. God works within the framework of this sin-cursed universe. And so what we see here is, in one sense, very typical. Just as we experience economically recessions and growth and recessions and growth, here the people of the ancient Near East are experiencing what we might call a typical international skirmish. This is happening around 2000 B.C., and it is typical politics. Somewhere, perhaps, in the past, these eastern kings had gotten to be the bosses of the region. They were in charge. They were not voted in. There were no hanging chads. They simply expressed their power and made these other five kings their vassals, which meant kind of a deal. You send us money every year, and we won't come in and obliterate you. It's not all that different from the IRS, is it? But that's the deal. And so the deal is, you keep sending the money and we'll leave you alone. And you can have some measure of self-control and self-rule. Well, this went on for about 12 years. And what happened is what typically happens. The first year, you're really afraid, so you pay off. The second year, you pay off. And every year that goes by and nothing really happens, you think, why am I wasting all this money? I could do all this Great things with this money. I could build a bigger house. We could take a vacation. Why am I sending all this money off? And in the 13th year, they said, forget about it. We're not sending it anymore. And a year went by. And I'm sure that they were thinking, well, this is a pretty good deal. But what they didn't know was the eastern kings were responding. And in the 14th year, they came down. The king of Shinar, which is in Sumeria or Babylon. The king of Elasser, which is what we would consider Assyria. The king of Elam, which is in the southern and central region of Iran. That's the area we're talking about. They sweep down into Palestine, the promised land. You can imagine it takes a little while to get there. There are no helicopters to paradrop them in. They come, and as they come, this is a very real war with very real consequences. They come down the eastern side of the Jordan River, down the eastern side of the Dead Sea, and they go as far as the Gulf of Aqaba, and they destroy everything in their wake. Archaeology tells us today can show us the course that these kings took because there are ruins of towns blasted by this army. And they come down and blast everything in their wake. And this is what is going on here in verses 5, 6, and 7. All these words that are hard to pronounce in these places, you don't know where they are. What you need to know is, the big picture is these kings come down and everybody who is important at all in this region, they blast out of existence. It's real power here. This is an army sweeping down, sweeping everything out of its way. And so these five kings now, you can imagine in their council, someone probably says, was this so wise of an idea? Because now they see these four kings coming after them and any hope for help is gone because all of the other nations around them have been blown out. The Amalekites, the Amorites, all of these other city-states. And so they gather together. And we hear about this event as opposed to other events, not because it's the biggest war, not because it's the most important war. Like all things in the scriptures, we hear about this historical international event because God wants us to know. This would have been forgotten in the annals of history. Except for one man. Lot. One man makes this an event that we learn from. It would have been forgotten, but for one other man, the survivor who came to Abram. God wants us to see from this, not a story of four kings or five kings. He wants us to see a story about Abram and how he acts. We would not have known this about Abram, but for this event. This battle is actually a backdrop for the spiritual battle that Abram will face later in this chapter and the kind of spiritual battle that you and I face. All of these events are completely out of control. Lot did not solicit this battle. He didn't advise the kings to rebel In one sense, he's a victim of his previous choices. If he would not have picked the Jordan Valley, if he would not have pitched his tent near Sodom, if he would not have gone into Sodom, we would have never been faced with this. But the truth is, the world is a bad place. And we are faced with these kinds of challenges because of imperfect decisions we make and because of decisions that others make around us that bring evil, destruction, sadness. But you see, there is a construct here that God is trying to teach to us, and that is that part of the Christian life is the conflict that occurs in the pursuit of the blessing that God has given to us. Have you ever wondered why God doesn't whisk us right up to heaven after we're saved? That would make sense, wouldn't it? We'd be perfect. We wouldn't need to learn anything. We'd get to spend eternity with God. Why do we need to mess around with all this stuff here? It's because God is teaching us that we are to follow Him in pursuit of the blessing that He gives to us, and that sometimes involves difficulty. Sometimes it's due to a result of bad choices, like five kings not exactly understanding what it means to rebel Or Lot's regression into Sodom. But often it's just a result of the sin in the world. Abram was not looking for a fight here. This wasn't even his battle. But in order for him to solidify the promise and to see God at work, he needed to act. This is, if you think about it, the eastern kings coming down into the promised land and saying, no one can have this but us. And in his way, Abram is going to say, that's not what God said. And when it comes to God's word, or all the kings of the universe, God wins. You need to understand that. When it comes to God and everything else, God wins. And so we should act upon that. We should trust that God will win, that God will provide, no matter what the opposition No matter what we try and do in building up our families, in reforming our communities, in building the church, in seeing the gospel go forward, when God says it will happen, we can take that to the bank. This is how Abram acts. God is directing all of the providence. It's interesting that the world doesn't see this, but all of this that is happening is happening because... Of God's relationship with Abram. The kings are rebelling because God has decreed it. The kings are going on the attack because God has decreed it. And God is moving all the forces of history for Abram's growth in grace. It kind of flips around the way we normally view the world, doesn't it? we normally see ourselves as these tiny specks caught up in this great maelstrom of things and events, completely out of our control, that there's nothing we can do about it, but the living, true God of the universe knows His people and He looks at us and He says, everything that happens, happens because I have decreed it because of my relationship with you. There is a very real sense... That the church, those who are blood-bought by the blood of Christ, who have professed faith in Jesus Christ, and who are the children of God, and being gathered together into His people, they are the driving, compelling force of everything that happens. And that includes you, if you have believed on Jesus. What a comfort. This is what is important. It's not the headlines And so the question then that I would ask you is, what do you pay attention to during the week? What grabs your attention? Is it the big things that seem out of control? Is it only headline events? Or do relationships grab your attention? Does prayer grab your attention? Do acts of mercy grab your attention? This is where God would have us be focused The world is actually revolving around Abram. And that brings us to our second point that we see. In a world that seems out of control, and challenges that are facing him, we see Abram exercise courage from faith. We see first that Abram is prepared. He has preparation for the battle. News comes to Abram of what has happened. It comes from a survivor. One man, one lone man, wandering, fleeing the battle, who has not fallen into these tar pits. They had this battle in the midst of, like, the La Brea tar pits. And as people were trying to run away, they fell in them and sank and died. One man escapes, and he wanders into the place of Abram. And he begins then to speak to Abram and tell him what has happened. Now, I want you to notice here that Abram is not exactly the best thought of person in this place. Look at verse 13. One who escaped and told Abram the Hebrew. Now, this has sort of a a cross between a negative connotation and the connotation of being a stranger. Oh, Abram, you know that guy, the Hebrew. It's kind of like the way that people referred to me in the Delta of Mississippi. I was Fred, you know, that Yankee. He's alright, he's an okay guy, but he is a Yankee after all. Right? I mean, he's not like us. He didn't live here, his parents didn't live here, he talks too fast. That's the way they're dealing with Abram. This is the land that God has promised him, and he's dwelling in it, and he's still a stranger. He's an outsider. Do you feel like that sometimes? Do you feel angry because you think, I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and what's happening in the country around me? I feel like I don't even know my neighborhood. I don't know my country. What is happening? I'm a stranger in a strange place. Exactly. Just like Abraham. This world is not our home. And so, this man comes to Abram and he says, you'll never guess what happened. And he relates to him the story. And Abram is, now I want you to understand this, and we can bring an analogy from it. Abram is already prepared. What happens is, someone comes and tells him, and Abram, verse 14, when he hears that his kinsmen have been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them and went in pursuit. Now, you have to imagine this army is on the move and they have a head start. Abram is already ready. He already has men who are trained. He already has men who are loyal. They're born in his house. He has been building up a force because he knows there are battles that are out there. And he's ready for the battle and he begins to act quickly. He gathers together to him his allies, those who, who are in alliance with him. But the Hebrew is actually very interesting. It says that these three men are owners of a covenant with Abram. It's a very odd phrasing. It's not the usual way you talk about being in covenant with someone. But what it means is, Abram had somehow gotten into their good graces, Abram had somehow gotten into such a relationship with them, that they had agreed to go to war with him. And so they go off. We don't know how many people they had. That may account for the stunning victory. Some look at this text and say, Oh, 318 people, they could never defeat an army. Well, first of all, don't ever underestimate an army at night. And surprise. Tell the Green Berets that you can only win with numbers. But there's also the fact that we don't know that Abram's allies could have had thousands of warriors with them. So they go off because Abram is prepared. And there's something that we can learn from this. Now, I'm not suggesting that you start an arms cache in your basement. Most of you don't even have basements. (laughs) What I am suggesting is that there is a spiritual parallel to this. And that is there are battles that will come your way. I do not expect eastern kings to sweep into Cinco Ranch. But I do expect the internet to bring things into your home. I do expect problems to come up at work. I do expect conflict to come up in your neighborhood. I do expect sin to wear its ugly head in your families. And you need to be prepared ahead of time. When the conflict comes, is not the time to say, I guess we should break out our Bibles. Maybe we ought to think about praying. It's ahead of time that we are prepared. We have trained men. And we are ready for the battle. And we put on our armor that we see in Ephesians chapter 6. We put on salvation. We put on faith. We put on the Word of God. out into battle, trained, prepared, and ready. That's what Abram teaches us. It also teaches us that Abram is willing to fight. Christians need to understand that there is nothing wrong with fighting for the right things and in the right way. Abram could have looked at this situation and been a fatalist and said, you know, this is just the way things happened. Armies come, armies go. You know, Lot shouldn't have made that decision. It's just the way the cookie crumbles. He could have looked and he could have said, by way of prudence, you know, I really don't want to get involved in this. It could get sticky, people could get hurt, I think I'm better just leave this alone. He could have even looked at it as so often, I think, the church is want to do, to look at other people and say, Oh, you got what's coming to you. <laughs> Let me stand over here and watch. This must be God pounding on you. You deserve it. Instead, Abram takes the courage of faith and he moves into the situation, knowing that Lot has done the wrong thing, knowing that there are difficulties involved, knowing that he is the only one that can act in this situation, not because he's got the best men, not because he's the smartest guy, but because, quite literally, he is the only one here who has God on his side. And so he acts. And he musters the troops and he pursues them as far as Dan, the text says. That's 120 miles down the road. I don't like to drive 120 miles, let alone march that far to go after Lot. And this tells us that the preparations that Abram made are only good because he followed through in his commitment by faith. There is a sense in which, I must tell you, that reading your Bible is a waste of time unless you act it out. Unless you believe what it says and act accordingly. Prayer is a waste of your time unless you believe that God will act upon it and that He desires to hear from you and commune with you. The faith of the Bible is not theoretical. It is something we must live and act upon. And so Abram then begins to act and to act for righteousness. He acts with no hesitation at all. Do you see this? He could have been scared. It's a pretty big army he's going up against. He could have held a grudge against Lot. You know, Lot, I gave you the choice to pick first if you'd only picked the right place. He could have thought of his own convenience. Oh, I'm going to miss lunch. Oh, I'm going to be tired. Oh, I'm going to be away from home. But instead, he acts without hesitation because the faith that he has in God brings about courage. You know, the world will tell us that faith is kind of a Pollyanna attitude. That it is denying the reality of the world. When, in truth, the exact opposite is the case. If we have faith in God... If we have faith in his word, then we actually know the God of the universe and we know the reality of the universe. It's those who deny the scriptures who pretend life is different than it is. They pretend there is no creator. They pretend there is no justice. They pretend that God does not see and act. But we who by faith have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, we can act upon it because of the courage that God gives to us. The strength that you need for everyday living comes from the Lord God. It comes from believing in Him and His promises, no matter what difficulties you face. And so Abram goes out, and we hear the shortened version of the military genius. How he divides his company and attacks at night, and defeats an unexpected foe. And he pursues them far north into Damascus. And he gains all of the victory. And according to the world's perspective, Abram is a great guy now. What a brilliant strategist. How brave were the men. No one else could have done this but Abram. Oh, he has done everything that we could have expected. But is this really the way that we should look at this? Do we honestly think that that's the way the history of the world works out? That the Muslims were defeated in Spain and in Austria and Hungary because a couple of guys happened to be smarter than their generals. Or do we believe it is the Lord protecting his church? Do we happen to believe that Gideon defeated thousands with 300 because they were the strongest men of their era? Or is it because God was on their side? Did Paul plant churches throughout all of the known world because he was the most brilliant, most capable man? Or is it because he was following the path of an inexorable, unstoppable God? This gives us some perspective. This is why we have courage. Because we have faith in God to do the work. Not in ourselves. The third and final thing we see is that there is a commitment to the Lord that is presented in the wake of victory. There's a very interesting scene on the end of this. Two kings come up to Abram afterwards. Now picture this in your mind almost like a Hollywood movie. Picture the king of Sodom coming up in all his bravado. Oh, Abram, wonderful job. So glad that you could help us out. Now remember he's just gotten his tail beaten pretty badly. I mean, he's got nothing to stand on. But here he comes and says, let me tell you what, let's strike a grand bargain. You give me the people and I'll give you all the things. Now, if I'm watching this, I'm standing there and saying, who's got all the things? Who took all the things? Why does the king of Sodom think he can give Abram All the things. But you see, this is the ploy of the world. The king of Sodom comes like he's on equal terms with Abram. He's the one who takes the initiative. He's the one who says he can give. And this is the way the world approaches us. They can give you value. Let me tell you what I can do for you. Let me tell you how I can exalt you. Let me tell you how I can make you important. When the world comes to you that way, how do you react? Now, don't say it out loud, but if you're anything like me, there's a part of you that wells up and goes, Ooh, I'm so... Wow! I didn't realize I was that important. Oh, I'm so glad that someone finally respects what I'm trying to do here. You see, this is a ploy the world uses, and the king of Sodom attempts to bribe Abram with false generosity. And this is when Abram is most vulnerable. We tend to think we are most vulnerable when things are horrible and when things are bad and when we are at a loss, but that is not true. The scripture is of vulnerability of victory. It's when Israel has grown fat that it walks away from the Lord. It's when the church is bursting at the seams that it forgets its mission. This is what happens. And so Abram is most vulnerable here and Abram is trying to avoid being fooled into betraying God. Because the king of Sodom wants him to betray God. The king of Sodom wants it to be said exactly what Abram says years from now that basically Abram became successful because of Sodom. But Abram won't fall for it. Why? Why? Is it because he has some kind of secret prism or glasses that tell him the difference between good blessings and bad blessings? That he could tell when good things come from God and when they don't? No. It's much more fundamental than that. Abram knows who Bera, king of Sodom, is. He knows he's a wicked, horrible, God-hating sinner. Do you remember Genesis 13? When we're told by Moses that Lot went towards Sodom and that they were exceeding sinners before God? Abram knows the character of the one who is coming to him. We need to make that same judgment. Don't take the platitudes and the praises of those who curse your Jesus. Do you know who they are? So Abram isn't fooled. He sees the substance behind the show. And then the second king is there as well. This famous Melchizedek. Who is he? How does he know who God is? Where does he come from? Well, I have to confess to you that I can't give you good answers to those questions. Because the Bible doesn't. History is full of speculation that maybe he's Shem, or maybe he's this person, or maybe he is the incarnate Jesus Christ. We don't know. All we know is, unusually, in a in a book full of genealogies, right? I preached on one, he's the only one that comes in and there's no mention of his father. There's no mention of his mother. He just sort of comes into the scene. And we wonder, where does he come from? So much so that later on, Hebrews will use him as a type of Christ, one who comes without father, without mother, without beginning, without end. He comes into the scene and comes out, but one of the things that we do know is that he precedes Abram and he precedes Levi. His priesthood is of a higher order. And David will use him in Psalm 110 to precursor the priesthood of Jesus Christ. He is a king, and yet he is a priest. He is the one that we see who is a priest-king. We don't see that anywhere else in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, whenever we see a king trying to act like a priest, bad things happen. Uzzah goes into the temple, tries to act like a priest, struck But here, this Melchizedek is a king and a priest, and Abram recognizes him as his spiritual superior. He gives him tithes, because he is the king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. In a world full of sin, Melchizedek is a king of righteousness. In a world full of war, he is the king of Salem, that is peace. And he comes, the king of righteousness and the king of peace, and he points Abram to the Most High God. That's what we need to take from this. He reminds Abram that everything that he has and everything that has been done is because of God. He says, blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands. He doesn't say like the king of Sodom, oh, you brilliant Abram. How can you help me help you? He says, blessed be the God of the universe, the most high God who is victorious through you. He recognizes that all of our joys, all of our blessings come from God. And this is another lesson for us, isn't it? Aren't we tempted to judge by the results? We must be doing the proper evangelism if the numbers are up. Our church must have the proper mission if things are growing. Our nation must be on the right track if GDP is up. And we don't look to the underlying substance. You see, Abram understood this because he wanted more than the temporary. He wanted more than the spoils of war. He wanted the permanent promises of God Himself. Is that what you want? Do you want to retire five years earlier? Is that your life revolve around that? Or a bigger house? Or more friends? Or better video games? Or does your life revolve around the permanent promises of the living God that are all yes in Jesus Christ? That's where Abram points us. That God had given him the victory. That God had been the one who was victorious and he could be counted on to keep his promises. This is true for you and me today. Today. Jesus Christ won the victory on the cross. It is already finished and He can be counted upon to keep every one of His promises that He has given to us in His Word. His church will prevail against all enemies. You will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. There is a room in the Father's house. God will set all things to right. All of these promises are true in the one who is able. Abram learned that in the midst of trial and mud, sweat and death. He had a tough life. The Lord knows the struggles that you go through. The Lord has ordained them. He's not ordained them for your comfort. He's ordained them that you might be fashioned into the image of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.